Oh, let's get him. How is everybody? It's your final few hours at ComNet, <laughs> and you chose to spend it with us, so thank you. I'm Jade Floyd, Vice President um, of the Case Foundation, and it's my pleasure to welcome Chad Nelson. He's the CEO of the Surfrider Foundation, who's going to be with us this morning. Over three decades, the Surfrider Foundation has engaged in a powerful California surf industry campaign, including billion dollars of businesses in the Save the Trestles campaign. And they've led grassroots organizing through multi-channel engagement and through their communication strategies. So the Surfrider Foundation is dedicated to the protection and the enjoyment of our oceans, our beaches, um, and they use a really powerful activist network. They were founded in 84 uh, by a handful of visionary surfers in Malibu, California. And today, the foundation has over 50,000 members, over 90 chapters worldwide. And we were backstage with the amazing team here at the theater, and we learned that one of the stage crew is actually a member of the Surfrider, so that was awesome. Yep. So let's jump in, Chad, and I want to explore a lot of the transformational efforts that the Surfrider um, has engaged in over the last few years. But first, I want us to watch this video showcasing your amazing work. Don't look back there. You're going to see a giant version of yourself. I know. <laughs> well, while they're queuing that up, how about we start with the question? Let's do it. I want to know what sparked your personal passion for environmental work. Why beaches? You, you know, I, uh, I, I had a really incredibly privileged upbringing. I, was, I grew up on the beaches of Laguna Beach in Southern California. And as I said to you, if you, know, if you watched Flipper as a kid, that TV show that took place in the Keys. They call Flipper, yeah, Flipper. That was my life. I was, I was fishing, I was swimming, I learned to surf. Uh, my dad was a scuba instructor, so I, I just had this great life. And you know, as a kid, if uh, you got a cut on your hand, your, my mom would say, oh, just go in the ocean, it'll clean it. You know, over the course of my lifetime, that went from that to, hey, you can't go in the ocean if you have mm -hmm. a cut on your hand because it'll be infected. The surf team at my high school, we have a high school surf team, gets a hepatitis shot before they go out and surf wow. because the water's so polluted. And uh, the other part of it was I, you know, I was a, became a lifeguard at 16, and uh, me and my buddies wanted to go out spearfishing, and we'd go out spearfishing off Laguna Beach, beautiful rocky reefs, and uh, we couldn't catch any fish. So we'd go to the older lifeguards and say, you know, what are we doing wrong? I guess we're bad at this. And they, they said, no, no, you're fine. The fish are gone. We fished it out. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, like, we took all the fish out of the ocean? You know, and that, those things, so those watching sort of this little paradise over the course of my lifetime, two decades, go from being healthy to being sort of unhealthy was what motivated me. I said, okay, that's not right. Uh, I didn't want to accept the fact that that's the state that we were in and it was this downhill path. So that kind of started my interest in like, how do we solve these things? Mm -hmm. And for example, now Laguna Beach has a no take, no fishing marine reserve that it's had for about seven years. And um, the fish are back, it's teeming with life and it's a great restoration success story. So you can make change if you get engaged and uh, solve these ocean and coastal problems. Exactly. So fast forward. Yep. couple of decades. Today, you're CEO of one of the largest environmental organizations protecting our beaches. Tell us a little bit about Surfrider and the work that you do. 
We are a volunteer-driven grassroots organization. We have 81 chapters in the United States, 90 in high, sc high school and college clubs. Um, we have a chapter in almost every coastal state in the country. Um, we work on five issues. We work on keeping the water clean, not only for the, the fish, but for the users. Uh, we work on coastal issues like sea level rise and climate change. Um, we work on ocean protection issues, whether that's setting up marine protected areas or stopping things like offshore drilling, which is currently a big threat around mm -hmm. the country. Uh, plastic pollution, and last is, uh, is we fight for beach access. The ocean is a, is a public commons. Beaches in America are a public space. Mm -hmm. In Los Angeles County, the largest public ocean open space, it's a park-deprived county is the beach. So um, there's uh, actually an environmental justice angle to keeping these beaches open because mm -hmm. they're free and accessible to everyone. So talk so. to us a little bit about some of the images that we're seeing. I think that you know, as we all are looking at what this campaign has embarked on over the past few decades, it's really transformational. And you know, you're able to really rally citizens across various communities. Communications is such a big part of that. So tell us a little bit about what we're looking at. So this is uh, an effort to save trestles, um, which is one of the best surf spots in the world. People travel from around the globe to come to this surf spot. Um, it's also the fifth most visited state park in California. Um, it's got endangered species. It's one of the last uh, sort of natural watersheds in Southern California. They use the water quality there as the baseline for cleanliness in the in Southern California region. Mm -hmm. um, it's got Native American cultural sites. So this is a magical place for a number of different reasons. Um, and the county, Orange County, the county that is in wanted to put a six lane toll road through this pristine watershed, eliminate the state park and and have this come out at the surf spot, which would destroy the surf spot. So there were a lot of organizations that um, were worried about this. We were also told we couldn't win. The road was already on the map. It was a, almost a $2 billion project. The money was there. Why are you gonna fight this thing? And it's in our backyard. This mm -hmm. is five minutes from our office. And uh, one of my former marketing guys that actually came up with a lot of the creative uh, for this campaign, he actually said, you know, if we don't fight this, I don't care if it's winnable or not, like, why are we here? Mm -hmm. So he was the guy, to his credit, Matt McLean, who, who, who like, lit the fire. Um, and then what he did, it was, there was a couple great lessons from this campaign. We had the most people show up for a um, water board hearing in the history of the state of California. We had the most people ever show up for a coastal commission hearing in the state of California, 1,500 people and the most people ever show up for a commerce hearing. Thousands and thousands of people showed mm -hmm. up at these hearings. Um, and he, you know, what he did in the coalition that we worked in, which we, was part of the um, strength, was we divided up the communications by sector. Sierra Club, people love state parks. You're, you, you focus on parks. Mm -hmm. um, Endangered Habitats League, you guys focus on the endangered species that are there and talk about why that's so important. Surfrider, you guys talk about get the surfers engaged. And that's amazing how you're able to mobilize different networks, yet you're still on the same mission, you're still on the same message. Talk to us a little bit about how you built that coalition. Yeah, that coalition was um, led by California State Parks Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, they were amazing. And uh, it, was a, it was a great example of just people coming together, 
with the same goal in mind and having the sort of presence and the ability to work together to, to trust each other and say, okay, you get this, you get that, you get that, and it worked really well. So for our campaign, some of those, um, some of those pictures, um, you know, we looked at the surf industry. We adopted a campaign that was kind of rock and roll and punk rock focused. We had like, you know, we were, we were riffing off the Sex Pistols, uh, the Ramones, um, and it, it, the lesson there to me was like, don't bring the people to you, go to where they are. Hmm. So the surf industry has that sort of rock and roll punk sensibility. There's a culture of t-shirts and stickers, so we made those. And it kind of went viral in a really positive way. People were wearing our merchandise, they loved it. And then all the surf brands started making their own. Mm -hmm. So that was, like, that was when we knew that it sort of had captured their attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just had this amplifying effect, because as you mentioned, there's a couple billion dollars worth of surf brands headquartered right in this region. So they took it on, they have hundreds of employees, they bust their employees, gave them a day off to come to these hearings. So. We, it's amazing we, how you're able to monetize, and that's a new revenue stream for you as an organization. Yeah, it was. It was the revenue and the message. So it was sort of this win-win. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's another one. We, um, the, another interesting thing about this state park is it was, surfing was opened by Nixon. The Western White House is on the bluffs above San Onofre. So when he was president, and that was the Western White House, he, he opened surfing. So Nixon was a hero to the surfing community in Orange County, despite all of his other things, and, uh, and Ronald Reagan established the state park, mm -hmm. San Onofre State Park. So here we are in conservative Orange County, and we can take two of their icons, Nixon and Reagan, and talk about why this place was so important to them. That's great. You know, and so that was another way of kind of flipping the script. So it wasn't the tree huggers versus mm -hmm. the like pro-development conservative Orange County people. cross-party lines. Yeah. So I'm told we do have the video. Oh. I think let's cue that up. Yeah. I fight for clean water. The ecology of the beach, the environment of the beach. I'm fighting for a more engaged general public. Erosion, rising sea levels, and the impacts of development. I'm fighting to keep our oceans clean and safe for the next generation. What we're trying to do is create the connection between what you do in your daily life and how that affects our local water quality. It seems like the threats that are facing our coastlines, our waterways, is increasing on a daily basis. Now is the time, you know, you gotta be the change you wanna see in the world. And our beaches, our coastlines, our environment is, is under attack, so. What are you fighting for? What are you fighting for? What are you fighting for? So what are you fighting for? Join us and become a part of the solution. So I love the message from that. What are you fighting for? And just last week, you had a monumental, well, two weeks ago now, you yep. had a monumental victory. The US Supreme Court declined the appeal of a billionaire venture capitalist who was seeking to keep a popular beach locked behind the gates of his exclusive property. Tell us more about that case and the outcome. Sure, and it's an interesting uh, case study on how not to do communications. Um, so there's a, a um, 
billionaire uh, tech entrepreneur, one of the founders of Silicon Valley, Vinod Kosla, founder of Sun Microsystems. He bought a 30-acre, $35 million piece of property at Martins Beach. It's not very far from here, five miles south of Half Moon Bay. Um, and that property had been owned by the Dini family for 100 years. And they had a gate, a, it's a private road through the property to the beach, um, and that had been open for 100 years. So people have been using this place for multiple generations. And so if you know Kosla, bought the property, locked the gate, hired a security guard. There wow. was a sign that said, welcome to Martin's Beach. He painted it over black. Wow. Uh, and it was local surfers and surfrider activists who were regular users of this place who mm -hmm. first noticed it. So they went to go to the beach and they said, you know, what the hell's going on? Uh, called us, uh, you know, and that started, that was in 2010. So that started this, you know, effort to get that gate open and that beach accessible again. Um, the county told him he needed a permit. The California Coastal Commission told uh, um, Vino Coastal he needed a permit. You know, we wrote him a letter and said, hey, you need to open this road. Let's work together. I get it. You want your privacy. Let's mm -hmm. find a way to make this work. And his response was, talk to my lawyers. And we said, okay. So we sued him. And, um, and suing a billionaire is not a small task. No, it was not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was interesting. So, it, you know, a couple of things. It, it also was an incredible communication success for us. We could do no wrong. It was David versus Goliath. So you had this guy, tech billionaire, you know, the, the um, zeitgeist in San Francisco is the haves taking advantage of the have-nots. And so this felt right into sort of the current climate of affordability and privilege mm -hmm. and all those things. Um, you know, so here's the evil villain, Vinod Kosla, a rich guy trying to steal access from the public. Um, it also was an easy story to understand. The gate's closed. It was open, it's mm -hmm. closed. And the solution's also easy, right? Open the gate open again. The and get rid of the security guard. Um, and so this story just went nuts for us. Every time we had uh, a day in court or a decision made, we would issue a press release, but it didn't matter. It just mm -hmm. took off. And so it was for us, it was definitely one of these stories where you're like, okay, this is just has all the ingredients to get the word out about these issues. Our challenge was to sort of explain that this is an example of what's happening every Everywhere. day across the country. Yes. So that's the part we tried to extend to it. Vinod Kosla, on the other hand, either didn't have good PR people or wasn't listening to them. He was playing victim, which apparently works at the Supreme Court, but, but did not work for him. Mm -hmm. I'm being extorted by these surfers. This is so unfair. Why me? Mm -hmm. This is, you know, and that didn't fly at all. Mm -hmm. No one's feeling sorry for Vinod Kosla. So talk to me about some of the challenges that you faced in that campaign, especially when it came to communications. Um, obviously, there's a lot of intake coming in. I've, if I remember correctly, every single major network, tier one publication, wrote on this campaign yeah. and wrote on this Supreme Court challenge. So tell me a little bit about what was going through the pipeline internally at the foundation as you're facing this potential crisis moment. Yeah, well, you know, it was interesting. So we the Supreme Court gets, a lot of cases get petitioned to the Supreme Court. They actually don't take very many of them. So, you know, we felt good about that. He had hired a guy named Paul Clement, which is, you know, he's a, like a candidate for the Supreme Court. So he had the best conservative private property rights lawyer in the country writing his petition. So that mm -hmm. made us nervous. And we also knew that 
you know, if we had to take on this fight, 2019 planning was going to be easy. This is all we were going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, we were waiting for the Supreme Court to make the decision, and we, they had three options. They could reject it. We win, which is what happened. Um, They could accept the case, and then it's battle stations, or they could punt it for four months, given all the chaos that was going on in the Supreme Court. So part of it for us is we had to have like, and we knew this decision was gonna happen Monday morning at 9 a.m. It was the Monday after the weekend that Kavanaugh was mm-hmm. um, confirmed, so the Supreme Court was also in the media, which in exactly. some ways was just dumb luck mm-hmm. on our part. Um, so we did have all three of those prepared. We had videos edited with the different messages, and so we were ready to kind of say, all right, let's go, whatever those three messages were. Mm-hmm. So. And we didn't really have a good sense of which one it was going to be. So as I hear you talk about this, and you know, all of us have our CEOs and the principals that we work for at our respective entities. You have a passion for communications, and you really see strong value in it. And you've really given your team the ability and the tools that they need to mobilize um, and to engage different networks. And we all wish that we could have CEOs like you. <laughs> I have one like you, yeah. but not everyone um, necessarily in communications network does. So talk to us a little bit, you know, those in the audience who may not have a CEO who really embraces, who gets it, who is pushing us to try new things, to experiment, uh, how can they go back to their office and use this as a best case, best practice for how communications worked? You know, I I guess that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) It was kind of like... uh, Lena Wyeth was like, you know, why, why are you doing this? Because she was just like, well, that's just because it's what I do. Mm-hmm. So part of it for me is I've always believed that this is the, the key to having success with your advocacy. Um, I think Surfrider, you know, we're blessed. We, we get to talk about surfing and waves in the ocean, so it's a fun, easy story to talk about, and people love that stuff. Um, you know, I felt like we were doing great work. We're kind of a group that nobody really knows about. We have an interesting communication challenge, which is, oh, you're a surf rider, it's a bunch of surfers, I don't surf, I can't be involved. So we're constantly trying to, to tap into the sexiness of surfing, but also have an audience that's broader than that. We mm-hmm. want to appeal to anyone who loves the ocean, which should be everyone. Um, so I kind of always just, I guess, believed in it. I came to the Sean actually invited me to the ComNet conference four years ago in San Diego. I had never heard of it, and um, he wanted me to give the opening welcome on the beach because they're having a cocktail party on the beach, and we're like, oh, I we remember need that the, cocktail we need, party. We, we need the beach guy <laughs> to come welcome us, so that was me, and uh, I was so pleasantly surprised by the community, the, how smart people were, the issues that people were attacking. So it was easy for me to dive in and feel part of the ComNet family. I would certainly share that with anyone else who's leading an organization, that it's not only skills-oriented, it's community-oriented, it's also really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can learn a lot from looking how, or, you know, I, I, I listen to a Planned Parenthood talk, or, and I can, I can learn from that and apply it to ocean conservation. Exactly. Um, I also think one of maybe the upsides of the last two years with Trump is just the lesson on how communications can really alter things for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. So um, if there's somebody out there that doesn't think communications is important at this point, <laughs> I, I, I don't Maybe know Maybe they to shouldn't be them. CEO <laughs> yeah. or president. Uh, so talk to <laughs> us about what tools resonate the best. 
you use a lot of different um, engagement tools to mobilize those chapters in your members. Um, tell us what seems to be you know, the most, for you in present day, um, the most impactful tools that you're using. You know, and I, I, this is sort of something I think that ComNet is preaching and you heard all week was, it, it depends on your purpose and your audience. So I don't think we're necessarily using anything that's particularly unique. Um, social media, because I guess we have like three different goals. We're trying to raise money like any charity. So we use email for that because that works. We heard about that yesterday. Um, social media is a great organizing tool on top of a great communications tool. So for us, certainly, you, our chapters out there are using social media not only to say, hey, these issues are important, but come to this thing. Mm -hmm. Saturday at 10 a.m., we're cleaning this beach, or we need you at this hearing, or whatever it is. Um, I don't think there's any rock, real rocket science about it. Mm -hmm. um, but the uh, in-person is so important. It yeah. seems like that's where you're getting a lot of this action. People want to come together. They want to be there to clean up beaches. They want to be at those rallies. You send out an email and say, be there, or a Facebook message, and they show up. Yes. And actually, that's a great reminder. So there's two things, I think, or three things that make that work. We make it fun. Mm -hmm. So serious issues, you got to make it fun if you want volunteers to participate. Um, we make it a community. So you know, they tell you if you want to you know, if you, if you exercise more often, get your friend to do it with you. Because if mm -hmm. you say you're going to be there at the park to work out at Saturday morning at 7 AM, and they're waiting for you, you're more likely to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so building community, which is person to person. So our chapter, you know, who, nobody wants to go testify at a hearing. It is boring. You sit for three hours to talk for two, three minutes. But if you're there with like 30 of your friends, mm -hmm. then it's fun. So, so building that community, I think, is, is really key. And last, we, we make a difference. So we win. Uh, people want to get involved in causes that are going to have an impact. So we measure that, we communicate that, and uh, they feel that. There's nothing better than having someone who says, you know, I want to ban single-use plastic bags in my community. I don't know what to do. You coach them through all of this. They've never been to a city council meeting before. They've never testified in front of people before. We help them mm -hmm. with that. And then you get the phone call like, we won. <laughs> ah, they're yes. so excited. Then they're an activist forever. An activist forever. That's what we all need. So we have, <laughs> you know, about 30 minutes left, and I want to make sure we leave time for folks in the audience to ask questions. So I have, I have a couple more questions for you. But you know, you, cert you celebrated your 30th anniversary this yep. past year, so congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's a huge milestone. Tell us what do you think have been some of the organization's most impactful initiatives thus far. I mean, you've had a Supreme Court victory. You've saved the trestles. So much has gone on in those 30 years. What else has really resonated with you? You know, it's interesting for us, one of our metrics is a victory. So we, are, we train our chapters to run campaigns, local, state, and federal. The, a, a campaign has to have like a political decision that they want, a yes or no. We have about 115 active campaigns around the country right now um, across a huge diversity of issues. This is the power of like pushing the power to the outside and giving it to your chapters and the grassroots. Um, and we started counting these in 2006, which was relatively late in our evolution as an organization, and we just hit our 500th coastal victory mm. this summer. Wow. Um, so that means 500 times a local, state, or federal decision-making body made a decision in favor of the coast or ocean. Um, 
of it's hard to pick. They're they're all my children. I love all 500. <laughs> it's amazing. But, 500. I mean, yeah, that's mind blowing. And uh, it, it's really just a testament to the power of grassroots action. Mm-hmm. You know, we we bat above our weight because we train people to do this. We can barely keep up with what's happening out there. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple, I think, of the most significant wins was this Trestles campaign. Um, we also, and Martin's Beach, which we've talked about, which all happened recently, um, we stopped, Obama, interestingly enough, had a plan to open up the Atlantic coast to offshore drilling from Georgia all the way up to Virginia, um, part of his all of, all of the above energy strategy, um, which was pretty concerning. Um, so we rallied over two years to stop that, and he pulled that off the map um, mm. and protected it, which is interesting because now Trump has proposed opening 90% of U.S. waters to offshore drilling. It's the largest threat to our coasts and oceans in America right now. So the Obama campaign that we were fighting actually was kind of like the dry run for mm. this bigger fight. Mm-hmm. And we had Congress against us then, but we, f- we thought Obama might, it was an executive decision, might make the right call. And the fact that he pulled it off the map actually makes it harder for Trump to put it back on the map. Mm-hmm. So there's some value in that. So that was another big win. And it was particularly gratifying because it was bipartisan. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we had business, we had over 40,000 businesses up and down the coast support the effort. So it was a campaign where everyone was against it. And so we, it was unifying in a way that environmental issues aren't often. So that was pretty satisfying. So- 40,000 businesses. That's a lot of brick and mortar stores, mom and pop shops, companies supporting you in the community. How do you mobilize them? How do you touch you know, each of them within this re- relative far distances across the shores? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was through the chambers, you know, because the National Chamber of Commerce is actually pro-offshore drilling, anti-climate change, very odd. Uh, if you go to the local chambers and they represent hotels and restaurants and, you know, beach rental gear, like they don't want offshore drilling because they have nothing to gain and everything to lose. Mm -hmm. So we got local and state chambers and that's how we got a lot of those numbers and we could Mm -hmm. rely on their organizing um, to do that. We also, one of the things we did, which is a great communications gimmick, is we have a surfboard that traveled from Georgia up to DC and we had over a thousand coastal businesses sign the surfboard. So it went from surf shop to hotel to restaurant and um, we have another one that's going from San Diego to Seattle right now. It just huh. got to Seattle. Um, and we bring these surfboards with, covered in the signatures to D.C. when we do sort of like our fly-in lobby days. That's cool. And um, every congressman and congresswoman wants a picture with the surfboard. And every time I show up in D.C. now, they, the first question is, do you have the surfboard? <laughs> so <laughs> a little bit of, like Ann Richards' story about her son, the surfboard has become this incredible symbol of what we're trying to accomplish. And now these guys know who we are, and mm-hmm. they all want to cozy up with the... They all wanted it in their office for the day. Yeah, they want to look cool with the surfboard. But that, it, it's a great mechanism to get them to remember who we are, what we stand for, and that coastal business is with us. Can you bring the surfboard to the Case Foundation office when you come to DC next? I will (laughs) gladly do that. (laughs) Okay, great. So you've been really open about sharing that you punch above your weight. Um, You know, you guys have a limited budget that you're working with. Tell us how you are accomplishing so much on, you know, a purse string budget. 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, is you know, tapping into the, you know, we're, we're almost more like, an, we're closer in some ways from a, in a communication standpoint to Patagonia than to sort of like an environmental organization. Mm -hmm. So we capitalize on the like beauty of the ocean and the thrill of surfing and the ambassadors that participate in that sport and use them to kind of get to that side mm. of the culture. And I think that helps. Um, the other is, you know, I remember hearing about UPS and UPS they said you know what is your number one communication vehicle at UPS and they said well it's our drivers which makes sense right mm -hmm. that's their brand their brand exactly. is their drivers that's who we all interact with. You see their with. outfit you know exactly that's yeah. the UPS lady um, or man. And so we have these 80 chapters these thousands of activists I'm, you know, I'm flying to Virginia today to like work with our East Coast activists so we train these people to sort of speak on behalf of the organization and empower them to do that. So it's like we have 80 little, you know, community groups doing their own communications mm -hmm. in their own communities, their own websites, their own social media, and they're out there um, being ambassadors for the organization. Mm -hmm. So that part of it is the magic, right? So we can't do that with our, our little office and our little budget, but we have like thousands of people out there as ambassadors for our cause. They and can. It's, it's a trust factor too. You have yeah. to really trust that they are going to be sharing the messages that you're trying to put out there. Definitely, and we invest a lot of time and energy in trying to make, train them and make them as good as they can be. That's great. Can you talk to me about what some of the training aspects that come with it that you're trying to do in each community? Yeah, so, you know, we, um, we train them on a number of, of things. We How to run an effective volunteer organization, sort of the big camp. So we have this big oil drilling campaign, so we'll talk to them about the tactics for that campaign. Eddie, my marketing guy's out there, uh, he builds these amazing toolkits that are accessible on our website, brand.surfrider.org. They're mm -hmm. just open source. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we build toolkits and so they can come in and take that information, build it their own, and get it out to their, their folks. That's great. So before we wrap up, we're going to get, if there's a couple of questions, raise your hands. We'd love to have you, you know, engage with Chad. But I have a couple of fun questions. Yes. I'm gonna call these quick fires. Let's do it. What do you love the most about the ocean? Uh, surfing with my family. And you have twin boys, I hear. Identical twin boys that are really good surfers, much better than me. I was gonna say, are they better surfers? All right. <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> what is the best beach, both domestically and internationally, that everyone in this audience needs to go to once in their lifetime? I'm biased. Laguna Beach, my hometown, I think, has some of the nicest beaches in the world. I'm a beach snob as a result of growing up there. So get down there. They're publicly accessible. The water's clean, and now they're thriving with marine life. Um, and then on the on the global uh, you know, on the global stage, my favorite place is the Oaxacan coast of Mexico. So mainland Mexico, really down far south. Beautiful beaches. The scale and geography of the what's going on down there is just awe-inspiring. Some of these beaches have 50,000 sea turtles coming in to nest on them. It's just, it's it, it, for me, it reminds me of what wild, healthy coasts can be. So I hear you have a goal to surf every coastal state. I do. I do. So we have chapters in every coastal state, so I've been trying over my time at Surfrider to surf in every coastal state in America, and I'm, I'm, I've got five to go. Maine, five to go. Maine, Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi. Nice. What do you think is the greatest threat to our ocean? And it doesn't have to just be one thing. It could be yeah. a couple. 
You know, I think there, there's two answers to that question. I think that the greatest actual threat to the health of the ocean is climate change, mm -hmm. which is causing acidification and warming and other disturbances. Um, you know, th there's a horrifying IPCC, International Panel on Climate Change report that came out this last week, you know, that says, hey guys, sorry, we were wrong. It's actually much worse than we thought. You know, no coral reefs on the planet by 2040 if we keep at the pace we're going, which most of us will be alive to see, mm -hmm. which is horrifying. Um, so I think that's the, the actual threat. But I actually think that the other way to look at it is, is complacency. The ocean for, is a communication challenge. This is why I actually talked about four years ago mm -hmm. in San Diego. If you go, I took a picture the first day I got here. If you go down to the beach right now, you look out and it's beautiful. It's blue on the top and it looks great. And it's really hard to um, see the threat because it's happening underneath the water mm -hmm. or it's happening at time scales that are too slow to observe. Mm -hmm. So unlike a lot of other crises where you can see it, it's really hard to get people to, to sense the urgency of the threats for the ocean. Audience, does anyone have any questions that you'd like to ask Chad? Right here, second row. Hey. In line with what we were just saying about the ocean looking beautiful on the surface and having it be really difficult to communicate the challenges facing the ocean, a lot of people, I think, see coastal conservation and ocean conservation as a problem for coastal people and not for the vast majority of humans that live far from the coast. Do you see it as part of the purview of Surfrider to try to reach people who aren't coastal people who don't have businesses or livelihoods or even recreational interests in seeing ocean conservation succeed? Great question. Um, it's a great tee up to the thing I want to preview at the end mm -hmm. of this, but um, the answer is yes. The beach is the number one tourist destination, vacation destination in America. So almost everybody goes to the beach. Um, coastal ecosystems, mangroves and seagrasses absorb more carbon than um, rainforests or any other sort of place on the planet. So they're a, if you care about the climate, and they're a carbon sink. Uh, and the ocean produces half of the world's oxygen. So we all have a stake in healthy oceans, um, regardless of where we live. And, you know, getting that message out is challenging for sure, but something that, you know, we definitely aspire to do. Mm -hmm. um, we're also a coastal people. You know, if you look at a satellite map of, of the United States or the globe at night, it pretty much outlines the planet. So at least we have that going for us that is, in general, we've moved to the coasts. So most people actually live, you know, I think 40% of Americans live with an hour of the beach or the wow. coast somewhere. But yeah, we do need to extend that message. Um, and we have members in every state in, Amer in the country, but we certainly could do better in in getting that message out to the to the rest of the country, and I'll, at the end of this, we'll, I'll show you uh, our more most recent attempt to do that. Any other questions? Good morning. Thank you. Um, I'm curious. Uh, with the Save the Trestles campaign, you talked how you kind of built a coalition with like-minded nonprofits and other organizations. How you went about doing that, and if you encountered any resistance. Um, in particular, I think sometimes we run into resistance in partnering because they're worried about kind of 
losing their people to possibly another competition. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, that competition sort of a, a a dirty word in I think all of our work, and uh, it's something we should probably f just face and talk about. So. Obviously, I want every other ocean conservation organization in the world to succeed because I want the ocean to be protected, just like any social group wants their other, you know, their sort of competing or partner organizations to succeed. But I also want the credit, and I want the funding, and I want the members and all of those things. And that, it's an interesting push-pull. You know, if you're in the private sector, it's just outright competition. You know, S Samsung wants to beat uh, or beat Apple in the phone game. They're not trying to pretend to get along. Um, so that is a challenge. This case and in some other campaigns that we've worked on, I think one of the easiest ways to make that work, and it was certainly the case in the Trestles campaign, is the people who funded the campaign, they were the ones who, who pushed us to get together. So they had the power, right? They're like, hey, we have this pot of money to help you win this campaign or fight this campaign. We're only going to give it to you if you form a, a coalition and can work together. And Elizabeth Goldstein, the woman at the California Parks, State Parks Foundation, kind of was given the, the leadership role, and she was amazing at being strong and straightforward and keeping everybody in their lanes and ensure we were working together. So I think you know, the funders have power uh, and strong leadership and clear roles and responsibilities were the things that, uh, that definitely made the day. Surfrider actually got, gets a lot of credit for this campaign, I think, more so than the other groups, which we're self-conscious about because we delivered the people and we had this really creative marketing campaign that, that is, was so easy to latch on to. Sure. There's two more questions I saw, one here and one over there, I believe. Hey, Chad. Hi, Tanya. Um, I was hoping that you would talk a little bit about your strategies for member growth and grassroots engagement since you, like, no one does it better than Surfrider. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting. Membership is, is challenging um, in this current era. In the old days, you had to join an organization like Surfrider uh, as a member to get the information. So the, usually that meant you got the newsletter and that's how you found out what was going on. And you know, now you have social media and websites and all these other ways to get that information. So our membership isn't quite as valuable in that sense. Um, it's also a source of political power. So every comment letter we write, I'm from the Surfrider Foundation, Charleston chapter in South Carolina. We have 375 members and we want this to happen. Um, so we try to use that, I think, as a, as a motivator to join. Um, the activism and the membership aren't as tightly linked as we wish they were. So we have a lot of people who are showing up and are doing the work, rolling up their sleeves and cleaning beaches and being active that aren't joining. And that's actually something, a gap we're trying to close and convince them, hey, you know, of course we want your $25 because it helps fund our organization, but more importantly, uh, we want you to join because I want to be the NRA of coastal conservation. And I tell people, if we get a million members, I can probably go visit the president. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You'll have the ear. Yep. So one last question before we depart. All right, well, I want you to know that I'm going to be your newest Surf Rider Foundation member. Awesome. Um, I'm committing to that and make sure that I will spread the word, and I believe that everybody here will too. Um, before we depart, tell us what's next. There's you know, so much going on. You've had 500 plus victories. You're 
90 plus chapters, your tens of thousands of members, what's next? Great question. Thank you for that. I mean, I should also say that, you know, over the last two years, we've seen an unprecedented attack on our coastal and ocean environment, um, just like we've seen across so many other sectors um, that we're working on at this conference. Ours aren't really getting a lot of media with the except attention, with the exception maybe of Martin's Beach, um, because these other issues are so arguably more important, more graphic, and lives are at stake. So, you know, we're trying to sort of make sure that people know that the Clean Water Act is being sort of, you know, attacked. Um, this offshore drilling is an issue, obviously climate change, and so part of what we're trying to do is say, okay, how do we respond to that? How do we get more people in the country to think about the ocean as, a, as something that's part of what their responsibility is to protect? Um, one of the things we found is people don't, because the oceans are a commons, um, people don't feel responsible for protecting them the same way they feel responsible for maybe protecting their hometown mm -hmm. or their local park or a, or a national park. So how do we create that sense of ownership and accountability? The United States actually has more water than land by area, um, which also many mm. people don't recognize. So we have a huge amount of ocean that's under sort of the United States' responsibility to protect and maintain. Um, so as part of that, we're about to launch a new campaign uh -huh. called the United States and Oceans of America. And this is our flag wow. that signifies that. And really what we're trying to do here is tap into people's love of country and sense of patriotism and uh, expand that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I had it. Ah. Yes, thank you. Um, I have to practice that, it's new, so I'll, now I'll know <laughs> next time. Um, so really what we want to, people to do is, is to tap into that. You know, everybody sees this, the flag of the United States of America and it evokes something, hopefully positive, uh, and flip that on its head and extend that responsibility out to the oceans because they're there and we don't really think about them. Um, so we're pretty excited, excited about this. So far, the people we've shown it to, it's been They've responded to it really well. Mm -hmm. um, it's an easy symbol for people to wrap their heads around. Um, we'll see if it causes controversy. It probably will. There's the blue line flag and other flags out there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you talk about the flag, the other thing, hey, the oceans are a commons. It's a place for inclusivity. It's a place we're all welcome. So if we really succeed at this campaign, we're also going to reclaim patriotism and some of these other concepts that I feel like the far right has claimed and, uh, and sort of signify sort of a bigger, better, broader set of positive values. That's great. So. so we have a video, but before we get to the video and we conclude for the day, yep. I want to recap all of the amazing things that I heard from you. One, you said backstage, which was, we need to trust the science and believe yeah. in it, and we really need to educate those about what the science is. Two, we need to build coalitions and we need to build trust in each other. Don't bring the people to you, go to where they are. That, I thought, really resonated with me. You want to make serious issues fun yep. and ensure that people have a fun time doing whatever it is you're asking them. And make it a community, and you want to make a difference. And the last two things that really resonated with me was that you have the push, the, you have the push and you have the power to be out, the out, you have the push and the power to be on the outside. And 
that we all need to use ambassadors and we all have a stake in creating healthy oceans. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And before we depart, I want you all to watch this and I hope you all will become members of Surfrider and tell us how we can do that. Yeah, surfrider.org, S-U-R-F-R-I-D-E-R.org. You can join us. We'd love to have you as a member. Um, I should also add that we're launching this campaign end of this month, beginning of uh, the election cycle, to really try to drive people to get out and vote and think about ocean issues when they, they vote. So um, that's another call to action we, and I think everybody else has. I've been telling everyone the most important conservation action you can take in 2019, or 2018, excuse me, is to vote. Here, here. <laughs> All right. Let's tee it up and let's leave on this note. And this gives us taste, a little taste of what? So this is the, the, the video that's launching the United States and Oceans of America campaign to try to evoke that interest and excitement in protecting our oceans. Thank you right. so much yeah, for absolutely. having me. Yeah, absolutely. This has been fun. Yeah, super fun. And thanks to all of you. This land is your land. This land is my land to love, to honor, to protect. But what about the other vast expanse of America that needs our love and protection? The Atlantic, the Pacific, the Gulf. They are our oceans, and they need us now. We urge the American people to join us to start a new fight the fight to free our oceans and coasts. They need us to free them from pollution, from plastic, from oil drilling, from habitat loss, from overdevelopment and climate change denial. Just as this land is your land, this ocean is your ocean. Our waves are as American as our mountains, our water as vital as our soil. If our ocean dies, so will our land. It's a new day for us, protectors of our beloved country. We must take up the task of reminding ourselves and our fellow patriots that our job doesn't end at the shoreline, that some of the most important parts of our country begin where the sand meets the sea. The future of our great land is directly tied to the future of our great oceans. We are the United States and Oceans of America, the land and oceans of the free, the home and waves of the brave. Thank you.